This morning, uh, you should have a bulletin. You should have a sermon outline. If you have that, grab that, please. We're in Matthew still. We're finishing chapter five. We're in chapter five. I don't know for the past eight, nine weeks, however long it's been. It's a long chapter. There's a lot of meat there. Last week, we were talking about uh, retaliation, an eye for an eye and cheek for a cheek. This week, we're continuing talking about our attitude toward others. And this is not just our outward actions like we discussed last week, but it's the inward heart toward others. It is not the letter of the law of only doing these actions and not these actions and being some works-based religion. It is the spirit of the law. What is Jesus trying to get at in his followers? As we remember that the whole Sermon on the Mount is based in the context of those who are poor in spirit. Those who are salt and light, those who've been transformed by the gospel, Jesus then tells them how they walk on this earth until he comes again. And so each one of these passages we need to see through that lens. And as we ended last week, I'm going to start with this week, we closed with Galatians 2.20. That walking in this life, walking in this flesh, requires a dying to self. So Galatians 2.20, again, if you're going to memorize one verse to sum up the Christian life, uh, and it's been very helpful for me and should be for you as well, is Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. We are to die to ourselves, die to the ways of the world, Um, and be new people united in Christ. Because the world hates, and the world bickers, and the world vindicates themselves. But we have a righteous judge. We have a righteous father. And we have our brother Christ who died for our sins as our vindication. So as we see that this morning when this passage talks about love and an interesting topic of perfection, which is very often confused in the church. So we're going to discuss that as well. Uh, let's read our passage in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 43 through 48, and then we're going to pray before we get into our message this morning. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, Sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray this morning that your word would ring clear in our ears and convict our hearts. That we would seek to be mature and aligned with you and not the world around us. That truth that that seems obvious, that we've heard maybe hundreds of times throughout our lives, would be renewed in our minds that these these words came from your lips, spoken to your people throughout time, and they're still true today as they were back then. Lord, I just pray that this morning your spirit would work through me and work in the hearers in this room, uh, that we would be guided and shaped into your image and be a body that loves you well and loves others as, and we're able to see them as created in your image 
and have value because you have given that to them. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first thing here, you have heard it said. Now, Jesus has done this several times here. You've heard it said of those of old. You've heard it said. He's going to say it again. You've heard it said. Sounds familiar. Shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Does that sound completely right? Well, the verse that he's referring to is in Leviticus 19. I'm just going to read the one verse, Leviticus 19.18. I want you to listen to this verse and see if something's missing. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Period. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Something additional in there. We've mentioned a few times that the Pharisees added to the law of Moses. The Pharisees added what Jesus called additional stumbling blocks around the law. This is a very big stumbling block. There's a difference between love your neighbor and then adding love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, But the Pharisees saw that as something that they had the right to do because they were Israelites. They were sons of Abraham. They could take it upon themselves to love who they wanted to love and hate who they wanted to hate. So Jesus right away is saying, this is what you have heard, but I say to you. So first thing we need to get is who is our neighbor? We remember the parable of the sermon or of the uh, Good Samaritan. We should know that. Should know that the priests and the Levites were supposed to be the holy men of Israel. They walked on the other side of the street while this man is bleeding and injured. The one who stopped was this half-bred Samaritan who wasn't even good enough to be addressed by most of the Israelites. And Jesus asked the people who were listening, who was his neighbor? The word neighbor, uh, it simply means it, whoever is nigh to you. It's nigh-ber. We don't use that language anymore. It's very King James English, but whoever is near to you. Jesus made that point is our neighbor are those who we come in contact with. So we, we set that first. Okay, the hate your enemies not in Scripture. And the neighbor is people who we come into contact with. Now, what does Jesus say in verse 44? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, today we're going to do a, a few different word studies. I think it'll be helpful. Uh, because reading this, this passage, it, it's pretty straightforward if we read it at face value. And it is. Uh, but there are some things we can pull out of here. And I want you to get my, my purpose this morning. This is more straightforward than most of the passages we've had in the few, last few weeks. Um, but I want to clear up some misconceptions about this passage. I want to talk about where this has been abused and uh, misinterpreted. And I want to talk about love uh, and the idea of perfection. Uh, we're going to spend some time on the last verse here because I think some people get, get stuck there. Uh, but our, our first word study we're going to do, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of times these minor words, these um, uh, prepositions, introductory words, they, they mean so much for the passage. So when it says, pray for your enemies, that word in Greek, huper, it means on behalf of. So it's praying on behalf of your enemies. Those who hate you, you, you petition before God on their behalf. You're not just praying for them like the uh, righteous Pharisee who said, uh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this poor sinner over here. We pray on behalf of those who persecute us. And that is a, a high calling. And that's something pretty radical. There are Christians all around the world right now who are praying for those who are persecuting them literally. 
And we do that for two reasons. I mean, why do we see people differently? Why do we pray for those who hate us? Why do we pray for those who persecute us? That's for two reasons. Justin stole my thunder a little bit. He mentioned them earlier. I kind of jumped the gun a little bit. But um, we pray for people for two reasons. One, we see everyone is made in the image of God. We see that all the way back in Genesis 6, that we are made in God's image to reflect him, to bring him glory. We think and speak in love because God thinks and speaks in love, loves. And for a second reason, this is very important. We don't see anyone as beyond the grace of God. That's why we can pray for those who hate us. That's why we can pray for those who persecute us, because no one has sinned so greatly that God's grace cannot transform and save them. That is why we pray for our enemies. And we're talking about enemies. Let's talk about the elephant or the donkey in a lot of rooms. Um, There have been a lot of conversations, put it mildly, um, arguments within the church uh, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday whose church right now is in a big kind of inward rift because their pastor uh, came out and he basically laid out where, why he was going to vote and who he was voting for and why he was voting. And this is a pretty big congregation. The congregation is not happy with it. And there are people in church who cannot see the other person's point of view and they are not loving the people who disagree with them. They're seeing them as an enemy. And it is creating rifts. And we've seen this in uh, families and in, in, in cultures. It's why we won't do that here. It's something really important that, that, that we need to see. We don't see people who differ from us as enemies. We can speak truth into those situations. Uh, we can speak our convictions, but they're not our enemies. We can pray for those who disagree with us. We can pray for when our hearts are stubborn and uh, we put our own preferences over other people. I think that's so important in in our culture and that we don't need to be people who feed into these arguments and people who feed into all this this tension over political parties because I can tell you presidents come and go, governors come and go, but Christ's kingdom is unshakable and it is eternal. If our eyes are fixed on that, then these little waves that come here and there won't bother us. We are to be people who are speaking to eternal truths and not standing on temporary, temporary shifting perspectives over eternal truths. I mean, think about who we follow, right? If anyone had the right to hate someone, it was Jesus on the cross. Did nothing to them. Literally turned his cheek. They, they tortured him. They humiliated him. And they killed him. What was the last thing he said on their behalf? Father, forgive them. Amazing the heart of someone who is facing the worst torture you, the humankind has ever seen, and he's still praying for those inflicting it upon him. We also see Paul, he's pouring out his heart in Romans. Lord, let it be me who takes your wrath and not my, not my, my brothers. I mean, this is Paul who went from persecuting the church to now is trying to reach the Jews who he had persecuted Christians right along with. And he's praying for the Lord to take him and not his brothers who are now in opposition with him. Jesus came into a world of people who hated him. Let's be honest. I mean, our hearts before we were transformed by God's grace were hard toward Christ. We were hard toward the the things of God. Jesus came into this world not uh, welcomed, but hated. 
But he still came bringing people to saving faith, just like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the church. And so because Christ did it, we should follow him and do that as well. Verse 45 says, for what reason? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The love of the father. I want to talk about something. Um, this is something I also want to to clear up. This is a common misconception, and I, I want you guys to get this. There is a sense. God loves his creation, loves uh, what he's made. He made it perfectly, but it is fallen. So there's a difference between God's love uh, for all creation and his salvific or a love leading to salvation that is particular for those he loves. Um, this is a, a side note, but it's helpful to understand. There's this idea that's become prominent in our culture. It's called the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Sounds great, right? It's not biblical. Uh, in, in 1901, this, this German uh, liberal philosopher, his name is Adolf von Harnack, um, he wanted to create this Jesus who is this social revolutionary who's going to bring all people together and was, his only message was of unity between everyone. We don't get a picture in Scripture that everyone is a child of God in that sense. We don't get a picture in Scripture that God's love is equal in every regard. Um, it's not comfortable to say, but it's true. God doesn't send those he loves in that way to hell. I mean, God has a perfect love and that he loves perfectly in each instance. But this, this passage is saying something very, uh, very profound here. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Those who are transformed by grace, those who have a heart that does not hate their enemies, those who have a heart that can turn the other cheek with, and do that clearly, those are the ones who reflect their father in heaven. And that brings in this, the, these next few words, um, it brings in a, a concept called common grace. This we, we've all said, and this, this kind of illustrates this. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. That's what we call common grace. There's a difference between the in grace alone that we sung about and read about earlier in the catechism, the grace that saves, and the, the, the common grace that doesn't just wipe us off the face of the map. Remember what we talked about, what was true justice last week. True justice is the moment I say sin, excuse me, the moment I sin, say forget you God, I want to be God. Like Adam and Eve, we were wiped off the face of the earth. That is justice. Mercy is saying, no, I'm going to be long-suffering and bearing towards you. Common grace is sending sun on those who hate him. Sending rain. And we always read this passage because we're pampered Floridians and we're scared of rain and we're really wimps because we think of rain as a bad thing. But when you live in the Middle East and it's dry or you're a farmer and you need your crops to grow, rain is a blessing. Rain, anytime it's used in scripture, is a good thing. Because when it's dry and it's hot and you can't feed your, your, your family, it's usually because there's some kind of drought. So when God sends his son, it's a blessing. When he sends his rain, it's a blessing. And we won't go outside because it's raining. You should feel ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but that is common grace. I mean, God cares for everyone. And there's a sense in which we don't think that that's fair, right? I mean, we see that believers uh, are getting persecuted and non-believers are prospering. 
And Proverbs tells us the wicked will prosper for a season. And God's common grace is that the sun shines on both equally in this life. And we don't understand it, but we know there are consequences for actions. And we see that our God loves us in a particular way that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sought us and bought us, purchased us with a price if you are in Christ. And when we recognize what has been done in our lives, we should be so grateful and respond in that that we couldn't dare hate someone who sins the way we sin. We love them in the way that Christ loved us. We're going to see that in some verses going, going forward. But God, in such a way, cares for all of his creation because he is loving. We can't understand the depths of God. We don't understand how those two types of love work together. But we know there is a love that leads to salvation. We know that there is a love that just keeps us breathing. And sometimes in, in Scripture, we try to reconcile these, these things. And sometimes there is no reconciling. We know that one is true and we know the other is true. And, and uh, we trust what Scripture says. And one day the Lord may make it clear to us. And some things we just have to trust him for. But he goes on. And to illustrate this again in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And he goes on to say, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So in scripture, just so you know, anytime tax collectors are are mentioned, they were hated sinners. Anytime Gentiles are mentioned, they were hated sinners. So Jesus is saying even sinners love those who love them. What does it benefit you? What are you, are you doing? Any, I love one of the translations that said, what special are you doing that you love only those who love you? Is it really love if we only love those who love me? Or is it really love if we only treat those well who treat us well? We've talked about so many times in the past few weeks is that love is an attitude of, of the heart. I mean, don't let the world fool you into thinking that love is just emotions and feelings that that come and go the warm and 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 fuzzies and the uh, butterflies and oh i'm in love at this moment what happens when the warm and fuzzies are gone you still care about that person when the feelings no no longer there any movie you see any television show i'm going to give a great writhing speech is love is all we need love is all we have love is the best thing okay what happens when i really don't like you right now Do I still love you? Do I still treat you well? And we've seen that in our culture. The divorce rate spikes up. Promiscuity spikes up because love is just a feeling. Love is just an urge. But the love in Scripture, the love that Christ's shown us laying down his life, that he tells husbands and wives to lay down your lives for someone else, it's a different kind of love. I love you even when you hate me. That is a biblical love. That is not a noun. It is a verb. It is an action. Um, I I, I love uh, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says here. There's a difference between loving and liking. I had to think about that for a moment. Uh, But he's basically saying we are called to act lovingly toward everyone. doesn't mean we have to like everyone. Wait, can I say that? Am I supposed to say that? I actually think he's right. I mean... I don't necessarily like everyone. I don't have to agree with everything you say, 
I don't have to walk in step with you when I, when I disagree with you, but I can treat you lovingly. I can treat you with respect. I can treat you like you were made in the image of God. I can say, a Republican can say to a Democrat that I love you even though your ideas are stupid. Some of them are, won't get into them here, but we, we, we know that. I mean, Sheree's not here this morning. She's, she's sick, but I'm going to say this anyway. I'd say it if she was here. Um, she loves to tell me that I love you right now, but I don't like you very much. Um, and she's usually right, and I usually have to recognize that and repent that I've been being a jerk. And, and, uh, but there is a sense that I will never stop loving you. Just right now, I don't like what you're doing. And so that is a distinction because sometimes this is misinterpreted. Like, I'm always supposed to love you. Like we talked about last week, I'm supposed to be a punching bag. I'm supposed to be a doormat. I can't be bold and speak truth into your life because that's not loving. And somewhere along the lines, we got this confused that being a Christian is synonymous with being nice. That we just put on a smile and we take whatever anyone gives us. But we can love people, treat them like they matter before God and disagree with them. And I think that's in line with Scripture. And we're going to see that with, with uh, Stephen in, in Acts 7 in, in just a few minutes. Uh, so the, the second verse here in this uh, two-verse two part, uh, first he says in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward you have? And then in verse 47, he says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. This word greet, aspazomai, uh, it's the same Greek word for salute. It's basically meaning that do, do you not only greet those who greet you, do you not salute or re- respect only those who greet you? I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees wouldn't even look at someone who wasn't on their level. They would not give someone the time of day if they didn't see them worthy. I mean, we know we have, we have a few in here who've served in the military and when you see a commanding officer, you see another officer, it is a sign of respect to stand up straight and salute. That's what this, this word has the same connotation. And if you salute only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even sinners do the same thing? So we have to recognize people's value and greet them with, with dignity, no matter who they are. It's kind of a hard thing for us. And, and, and a lot of times in our culture, we don't have a, a caste system culture, but sometimes those caste systems are kind of unspoken. You know, the business people don't speak with the workers and, and you know, you, you don't have a conversation with the person who you're, who you're getting your, your cheeseburger and fries from because they're below you in a sense. Not saying that that's you guys, but that's, that, that's kind of what happens. I mean, these are the burger flippers and I'm over here and I'm white collar and, I'm, and, and we, we do that. Um, without even without even thinking about it. And I think if all of us think about it, we, we don't greet people that way. I can think back and how many times I've had an opportunity to witness to people just because I asked them how their day was going or I started a conversation with them and they remembered me next time. It's like, oh, you're the person who actually remembered my name or just asked what was going on in my life. And then you open a door to have those conversations with them. That's why we treat people with, with, with dignity not just because of some moral uh, absolute that we do on the outside. It's because it's an opportunity for witness. It's an opportunity for the gospel. What better way to show the love of Christ than to show people that we love them by looking them in the eye, treating them with, with, with dignity, and caring about what's going on in their life. So getting to verse 48 here. Um, it's kind of a little running commentary on, on the past few verses, but 48 is where we're going to spend most of 
the, the, all the rest of our time this morning. Because this trips people up, and this is important to do a word study here. We're going to spend a lot of time on this verse. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right. Let's talk about this word, perfect. Because in our minds, um, when we read this, we tend to think perfect. Without mark, without blemish. And in a sense, when it's talking about God, it's talking about perfection in that way. Uh, but the Greek word tilios, it actually means more of a uh, full-grown, mature, perfect, lacking nothing. It's, it's more of a broad sense. And sometimes that, that word perfect gets tripped up in our, in our modern language. Uh, the, the root word is tilos. And that's basically an end or a goal. So it is being complete to the end. It is reaching your your goal. It is lacking nothing. And it, it's interesting that this word is often compared, uh, used to compare children and adults. It's used very much for maturity. So when you compare a child to an adult, it's going from not being mature to being mature, from being not perfect to perfect. Now we all know that adults are not perfect, but in a sense, there's a maturity that happens between a child and a mature person. And this is a spiritual maturity. Um, the goal is to be like our father who is complete, lacking nothing, spiritually mature, not like children. And we're going to see that uh, in, in so many passages in, in the New Testament in just a moment. But let's talk about um, what it's not. There was a doctrine by John Wesley. It was called uh, perfectionism. John Wesley believed that you could be perfect in this life, literally. You'd never sin again. You could work your way toward perfection. Now, he admitted he had never reached it, but he admitted that it was possible. Uh, and there are many people who still believe that. I think we get a very different picture in Scripture. I mean, relevant, you guys just finished going through 1 John. Um, and John will tell you, if you think that you're without sin, you're a liar. Um, and it's not that kind of perfection as we never stop sinning because we know we're still affected by the fall. And that can kind of a sigh of relief to us. Because if you grew up in a tradition that thought that you had to be perfect all the time, that thought that every time you made a sin, or every time you, you, you sinned, you were about to lose your salvation, that's a lot of pressure on you. It's a lot of undue pressure to be perfect all the time. Let me let you off the hook. You don't have to be perfect. You're never going to be. I'm never going to be perfect. We can believe it. We can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. But... We are called to maturity. We are called to be full grown in the faith. We are told many times that we are to move from milk to spiritual food. Um, I was thinking about how to illustrate this. And um, the, the, the phrase moral compass, I think, ha is a good jumping off point for us. Because it has some kind of truth to it. Uh, anyone who knows this is basic science, what does a compass need before it can tell direction? What needs to happen to it? It needs to be magnetized. Correct. Very simple process of magnetizing a needle. Once it is magnetized, because our earth is a giant magnet and it has its, its own magnetic field. Once that needle is aligned to earth's magnetic field, you can put it wherever on the planet you want it to be. And it will always point true north. Once it is aligned, it was able to give direction. Now, we've all seen needles. You know, they wiggle a little bit on a, on, a, on a compass. If you haven't seen a compass, get outdoors. 
Um, but on, on a needle, it, it wiggles a little bit on a compass, but it will always end up at, at north. Um, and I think we're not very different than that. And that we need to, once we are aligned with our guiding power, once the Holy Spirit has transformed our lives, we are able to point true north. And we're going we're, we're gonna to wiggle back and forth a little bit. Uh, we're going to stray. We're going to stumble. But we first need to be aligned toward our Father, who is perfect. He is our true north. And once we're aligned to him, we're able to give direction. But we, we can't think that that's just something we do on our own. I mean, without Christ, there's no hope for perfection. There's no hope for pleasing the Father. But what good is a compass if it's not aligned to its true source? It's just a needle spinning aimlessly. But if we are transformed and aligned with our Father, guided by the Holy Spirit, our minds, our hearts, and our wills are renewed. So I want to spend some time on this idea of Biblical maturity, what that looks like to be mature in Christ. So we're going to do one of those little Bible drills. I'm going to have you move with me in your Bible, but I made it easy for you. We're just going to keep moving to the right. So take a little journey with me. Um, we all know the story of the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I want, to, I want to talk about that for a moment. So the way that Matthew describes this interaction with Jesus and, and, and the rich young ruler uh, is a little different in Matthew, and it's very interesting. Because look what he says here in verse, uh, what is it, verse 21. The young man said he had kept all these laws. All them I have kept, what do I still lack? Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and then you have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now we know Jesus is not telling this man to be perfect. This man is not perfect. He thought he was. Jesus is saying, if you want to be spiritually mature, get rid of your attachment to your stuff. Romans 12. Let's go to our, our next passage. This one you should be pretty familiar with. Uh, it's used quite often, but it's helpful to understand the same word, Tilios is used here in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, we're just going to keep turning to the right, make it easy on you. Romans 12, 1. I appear, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be a living sacrifice, transformed by grace to discern the will of God. In order to know what is perfect, what does it say? The transforming, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's this regular renewal. It's being in God's word leads to maturity, leads to understanding what is good and what is perfect and what is God's will. People ask me all the time, what is God's will? Well, how do I know God's will? Are you in his word? Are you talking to him? Are you, are, are you praying with him on a daily basis? If you spend time with the Lord every day, he will make his will clear to you. Sometimes it's not a decision. Sometimes it's just a position that we are to be in before the Lord. Next passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, just a few pages over in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8. thought this was really interesting. Same word here, teleos, is used, is translated mature. 
Yet among the mature, so we're in 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they would have, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. So among the perfect, we do impart wisdom. That sounds a little funny. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need wisdom. Again, that's why this, is, this concept, it is more of a spiritual maturity. If you were mature, you would understand these things. And we, Paul wants his audiences to be mature. Because those who are immature, those who are not perfect, those who have not been transformed, they crucified Christ. Paul makes that distinction here. The writer of Hebrews, our next passage, Hebrews 5, 13 through 14. If you need a list of these later, if you don't have time to write them down, I'll be happy to give them to you. There's actually a lot more. I just grabbed a few. Um, but this is what's called a biblical theology. We're taking passages in the Bible. and We are creating our theology based on what Scripture says, not just opening up the dictionary. Oh, here's the definition of perfect. That's what this means. When Scripture uses a word, there's sometimes a broad range of, of meaning. And to, get, and to read several different verses, uh, you'll get that broader range of meaning and be able to see what this idea of being perfect means. So Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 13 and 14. I thought this was really helpful. Um, so when he's talking about milk and solid food, he's talking about the elementary things of the gospel and the more weightier uh, Principles of the gospel. Verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the, in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Pay attention. Do not miss this. How do we become mature? How do we move from milk to solid food? Verse 14 tells us. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by... Constant practice to distinguish good from evil it takes practice. It is a discipline to know the wisdom of God. It is a daily practice to become mature in the faith, to move from milk to spiritual food. It is a constant practice. And only then can you distinguish the good from the evil. Can you see the wicked of the world from the truth of Scripture? All right, one more verse here. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And James actually uses this, this word more than anyone. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. James gives us the most full orb view of this, this word. Same word. He used it in the context of suffering and trials. Trials are going to come, but trials will work on your faith. They will bring you to maturity. You will lack nothing if you are still aligned to your Lord through this, if you are rooted in, in the things of God. And so as we look at these verses, you ask yourself a serious question. Am I maturing in Christ? Am I moving from milk to spiritual food in my own life or am I happy with my bottle and the simple things and being this nominal Christian? I mean, it's, an, it's a question we all must ask ourselves.
Or if you are not in Christ, what does this mean for you? What does spiritual maturity look like? I mean, as Christians, are we being daily transformed into his image? Or are we stagnant, drinking milk? This is moments when we should examine ourselves. Because when Justin and I came together and we had this conversation about what we want our congregation to be, we want you to be mature in the word. We want you to grow into the image of Christ. If you want to know how to do that, if you don't know how to do that, talk to us. We want to help you through that. Uh, And what we're going to do at the beginning of the year is we're going to come together as a congregation. We're going to look at what that means to be mature in Christ, what the spiritual disciplines of a faithful believer are. So what does that look like lived out? That perfection, that spiritual maturity bringing all this together that is able to love those who hate and persecute you, but also be complete and lacking nothing. And our last passage here, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7 with me. Uh, Just as a side note, we won't get to 1 John 4, uh, but you guys who are coming from relevant, you guys just finished 1 John. That passage explains this really, really well. 1 John 4, 7 through 21, but we're not going to get in that this morning. Uh, but we are going to get into Acts 7. I think this is the most clear example we have of this passage being lived out. Because Stephen got this. The other passage is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. So we're in Acts 7, verse 51. Now, this is Stephen responding to the Pharisees, as you know, are getting ready to kill him. He's proclaiming the gospel. They, they, they hated him. What is Stephen's language toward the Pharisees, those who are hard of heart? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it does Stephen like the Pharisees very much I think this is a great example of you stiff-necked people it's not an endearing term don't say that to anyone you, you you love but Stephen is being truthful toward them this is a loving statement he's telling them you persecuted the prophets of God you killed the son of God That is a loving statement. I love you so much, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to tell you when you're being stiff-necked. Let's go on. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So they hated him, pretty clear. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. All right, let's stop. Let's see what's happening here. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Want to know what spiritual perfection looks like? Full maturity? It's when the Spirit is guiding your actions. You're no longer thinking about yourself. He's no longer concerned with his own well-being. He's so filled with the Spirit that heaven opens up and he sees Christ. The only time in Scripture Christ stands to salute him. Because this man stood bold in the face of persecution and proclaimed the gospel. 
Then they cast him out of the city. Or where am I at here? Uh, verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul, who will later be Paul. Saul knew persecution very well. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I know what it looks like to love those who hate you, to pray on behalf of those who persecute you. Stephen did that perfectly. And he breathed his last breath as an example to us. So concerned with his own welfare that as he's in a pit with stones being hurled at his head about to die, he's praying for those hurling stones at him. I don't know if I could do that. I hope I could. hope in that moment I'm able to stop thinking about myself. But as maturity, that is our goal. Not to think we can ever stop sinning, but to be so dependent and in love with the Lord that we don't want anyone to perish. That we are willing to pray for those who are throwing stones at us. So how do we conclude this morning? What would the witness of the church look like if we all did this? What effect would we have on people if we loved in this radical way? If our witness was so obvious by the way that we treated people, especially those who hated us. We were above name-calling and fighting and finger-pointing, all, th- all the stupid things that the rest of the world argues about. What would our witness look like? Think about Stephen and how bold he was in his proclamation of the gospel. In the midst of actual persecution, he loved them enough to pray on their behalf. And hopefully you saw through all these verses what spiritual maturity really is. And I want you to know that Jesus' goal in the Sermon on the Mount is to bring his people into spiritual maturity. And our goal as Grace Fellowship is to bring us into spiritual maturity, hand in hand, side by side. People who are called by the Father, transformed by the Spirit, and bought by the Son into spiritual maturity. We would love one another in such a way that we reflect our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to even call you Father. To know you in such an intimate way that you have brought us into your family. Lord, this is a difficult topic to discuss. So many times we're we're satisfied with this ankle-deep Christianity that does not reflect your word, that is not life-changing, that is not transforming, that does not convict hearts and change lives. Only the grace that comes through the work of your Holy Spirit can transform lives, and only that work of the Holy Spirit will bring us into spiritual maturity. Lord, I just pray that we would align our wills with yours, that we would submit to the truth of your word, that we, we would be people who are beacons of light, that we would grow from milk to solid food, that we would be able to be bold in the midst of persecution or just in the midst of difficulty or discomfort, that we would love others so radically that they would have to ask, what is that hope that is within you? 
Lord, that we would be a reflection of your love here on earth. That we would be people who are known for the way we love, for the way we serve, for our maturity, for our wisdom in Scripture. That we would be deeply rooted in your word. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.